All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Chainlink God podcast, where we break down the information asymmetry on all things blockchains, oracles, and smart contracts. So if you've been following me for the past few weeks, few months, past year, essentially, you've kind of noticed that I've been much more heavily focused on uh, the application of tokenized real-world assets within the on-chain uh, financial ecosystem, call it DeFi, call it whatever you want. Uh, it's my personal belief that you know, if crypto is going to move past this speculation-oriented phase of you know, speculating on tokens that have value because they can monetize speculation, if you want to move past that point and expand to providing you know, real-world utility, uh, capturing these trillion-dollar markets, then you know, we have to provide access to the assets that people want and that they want to use. And that's largely the assets that already exist in the traditional financial system. So one of the projects that is making major moves, particularly this week, uh, with real-world assets is a project called Ondo Finance. Uh, they're currently tokenizing treasuries and bonds, and they just recently launched a money market uh, this week to borrow against those assets. So who better else to talk about Ondo and real-world assets than the CEO and uh, founder of Ondo Finance, Nathan. Uh, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, you know, I've been a fan of Chainlink and your uh, your community leadership for a long time, so it's great to chat. Yeah, appreciate that. Appreciate that. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. So I think just uh, to kick off the conversation, I think it'd be good just to to kind of set some, set some context about yourself. So could could you provide a little bit of introduction, a little bit about your background uh, and who you are? Yeah, definitely. Um, maybe I'll start with my professional background and then can get into Ondo. Um, so I started my career in TradFi. Uh, I worked at a private credit manager in New York out of college. Um, you know, pretty quickly became crypto pilled in 2017. I uh, got excited by some early DeFi, MakerDAO in particular, you know, DYDX, back when they put out their white paper, um, you know, invested in a bunch of ICOs and traded very actively throughout the 2017 mania and actually quit my job at the market top in December of 2017. Um, <laughs> I, I traded for a while throughout 2018 and then to early 2019, full-time focus, mostly on algorithmic event-driven trading. Um, traded things like exchange listings a lot, and then eventually joined Goldman Sachs in the middle of 2019 on their digital assets team. Um, there's a, a pretty unique opportunity. You know, we were a small four-person team. Um, you know, sitting in firm-wide strategy, shaping the blockchain strategy of the firm. Um, you know, we worked jointly with investment banking, global markets, all sorts of other divisions across the firm. Um, you know, on everything crypto related. Uh, you know, I actually spent a lot of time working on security token issuances there. We helped the, the European Investment Bank issue a bond on public Ethereum. Um, you know, we also did a bunch of work in the crypto market services space. So we had some Bitcoin derivatives, like a non-deliverable forward. And, you know, as yields in crypto started taking off in early 2020, I spent a lot of time exploring how to lend over collateralize against Bitcoin. Um, that would be held at, you know, a tri-party agent, not too dissimilar from how Flux works. And yeah, I became personally very involved in DeFi in the background throughout 2019 into 2020 and, you know, made the leap to found Auto almost two years ago, exactly in early 2021. Um, you know, we started out tranching out DeFi native yield back when DeFi native yield was, you know, incredibly high for more risk averse traditional investors. And then, you know, over time, as the speculative mania cooled off, um, we, you know, and, and DeFi yields collapsed, we expanded our focus to bring 
rolled assets on chain and, you know, to do so in a manner where, you know, we and other protocol developers could actually use them as the backbone for what I would consider a, a kind of new generation of, of DeFi protocols like Flex Finance. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a risky uh, jump to to jump in at the market peak, but I feel like a lot of people have, have kind of taken that approach and they've kind of, they found their own journey and it sounds like it's you've kind of found yours. And we'll, we'll jump into Ondo and, and Flux a little bit more in detail in, in a bit, but I think kind of to just set a little bit of context for people who don't know or want to learn more, um, you know, what what exactly are tokenized real world assets? So, you know, what makes them different than, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum or some native on-chain token I can mint myself? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I guess definitions vary a little bit, but I'd consider tokenized real world assets to be any with an issuer that exists outside of a blockchain um, and ones that are actually represented authoritatively on a blockchain. Um, you know, generally speaking, tokenized real world assets are created through actual legal agreements that establish the rights of the token holder, um, you know, in contrast, of course, to crypto assets like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, you know, tokenized real assets have been around for a while. They're super popular back in 2018. Um, you know, there's a ton of investment into security token exchanges like G0. Um, they were, they're more so called security tokens back then than, than tokenized real assets, but generally pretty similar concept. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they've, they've really always been focused on delivering a lot of the benefits of blockchains to traditional assets and traditional markets from, you know, improved transparency, reduction in reconciliation costs, you know, automatic real-time settlement, stuff like that. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I remember the, I remember that craze about security tokens. That was a few years ago, and it seems like that never really took off. It seemed like it was the assets people didn't really want on platforms people didn't really <laughs> use. So it seems like stable coins, is, that's like, you know, tokenized dollars. In my mind, at RWA, do, do you consider like USDC or something like that to be an RWA, or is that that's like totally. slightly different? Totally consider that to be an RWA. I mean, they're you know they're they're from off-chain issuers. You know, legal agreements establish the rights. Um, and yeah, I think stablecoins overwhelmingly have you know the best product market fit of anything in crypto outside of you know Bitcoin and ETH. Yeah, yeah the security tokens. Oh, sorry, the security tokens of twenty eighteen. Um, it, it was kind of like the ICO phase for crypto of 2017. I mean, they were, um, you know, still marketing ideas more or less. And there really wasn't anything that investors could actually do with their tokens, except maybe trade them on like a single centralized platform. Um, and yeah, agree. Like you said, they're, they weren't really assets that anyone on chain actually wanted. Yeah, it seems like we're making the turning point with the the treasuries and the bonds and these, you know, traditional assets people want. And I think with stable coins, people realize like there's these cases of crypto that don't don't require on a mechanism where new money needs to keep flowing in to keep the system sustainable. You know, it just it's the asset. It exists. It's backed. It just kind of works yeah. as is. <laughs> I think that's that's quite different than how a lot of the ecosystem works. Um, I think like when you look at the different audiences for real world assets, you know, there's like end user consumers, investors, and then there's more of the institutions, and then there's the issuers themselves. What what's the tangible benefits for like each one of those? Uh, those uh, audiences, like why would somebody, why would an institution want to tokenize the real world assets? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll speak to that from the perspective of Ondo. I mean, our focus is very much on expanding accessibility of real world assets to the crypto ecosystem, um, you know, at, at least for now. 
Um, you know, we're distributing directly to high net worth individuals, businesses indirectly to retail through, you know, third party platforms like exchanges and protocols, um, you know, and our end users really don't have for a variety of different reasons, great access to these assets today. Um, you know, I think the fact that there is so much capital on chain that is so desperate for exposure to things like treasuries um, is really the catalyst that, you know, the market needs for security tokens to take off. Um, you know, longer term, I think the benefits are, you know, a little bit different. I think that, you know, traditional market investors will be drawn to a lot of the same benefits that, you know, blockchain and that DeFi offer in the first place, like, you know, the ability to control your own financial positions and, you know, not be locked into a particular platform. Um, you know, at least for me, and I think for a lot of people, it's a pretty magical moment in 2020 during DeFi summer when, you know, we realized that you could switch from one platform to another with, you know, one click on a MetaMask wallet, you know, as opposed to the, you know, several days that it takes to, you know, move securities from, you know, one brokerage to another and how difficult that is. So, um, yeah, I think over time we'll see these sorts of benefits coming to traditional finance and that they'll be of much broader appeal. Yeah, it really seems like those, those like settlement guarantees and then the interoperability between those applications and the composability of those applications on a common settlement layer seems like a really core value proposition here. And I guess that kind of, we, we've seen tokenized assets within other environments like permission chains run by institutions, but it seems like the shift now, from my perspective, is a lot of that's happening on public chains. Uh, what, what do you see as like the value prop of tokenizing specifically on public chains versus going down this this permission route that a lot of institutions have have tried over the past decade or so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they're pretty different appeals. Like today, public blockchains represent an ecosystem of, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars with all sorts of established marketplaces and, you know, a bunch of different builders creating protocols and, you know, none of these things exist in the permission blockchain ecosystem because, you know, it's generally not open source, like anyone can't deploy a protocol or a business or, you know, be an investor. So, um, you know, I think the value prop is very different. You look at these like super permissioned and private blockchains, like the, you know, the Cordas of the world and, you know, they're really targeted at, you know, broker to broker financial activities, you know, post settlement processes and streamlining operations and reducing costs, not at you know, expanding accessibility or, you know, improving composability or anything like that. So I think that the, you know, the work of, of a lot of these private permission enterprise blockchain applications is very driven by, you know, by ops personnel, you know, these, these very experienced back offices at a place like Goldman, but um, have a lot less to do with, with, you know, the actual blockchain. You think that the assets that have been issued on permission chains, those issuers are going to move over to public chains, or like the public chain issuers are just going to be a new set of a new set of uh, entrants issuing these tokens? I think that it's going to be kind of a blurry line. I mean, there, it, it, it's really not that clear what exactly makes you know a blockchain permission. Like, I think that we can have you know blockchains that I would consider fairly public but others might not where there are, you know, permission validators, like you have to, you know, KYC 
to be validated or potentially even, you know, KYC to hold the token, but, you know, with, you know, zero knowledge and other solutions, like your identity could still be, could still be private. Um, so it, it's a little hard to foresee, but I think that we'll see some more interesting compliant, but like hybrid permission public blockchains in the future. Yeah. And w- when considering compliance, you know, it's it's fairly easy just to mint a new token and then you have that token on a public chain. Anybody can interact with it. But obviously when you're dealing with these regulated real world assets, there's a lot of these hurdles that have to be overcome. What, what would you say is like the general challenges that have to be overcome uh, in order to tokenize these assets on a public chain specifically? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of, of different hurdles from, you know, legal to technical to, I mean, you have to you know, have all the traditional back office financial infrastructure of a, you know, of an asset manager. Um, but I, I don't think that those barriers are necessarily, you know, that high, frankly, like we've seen a lot of different security token platforms, as we've talked about over the last several years. Um, you know, I think that the challenge is really around developing the use cases for the tokens, um, you know, getting them integrated with other protocols. So that's really been our focus at Ondo, you know, partly in developing Flux and you know how we see ourselves as being more differentiated. I think that the tokenization itself will become pretty commoditized. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity and there's various different entrants that are taking, you know, slightly different approaches to how that how they take it. You know, a common maybe not common, but a sentiment I see sometimes like within the crypto native sphere, you know, people are more like decentralization maximalists. They want everything to be permissionless, fully open, fully decentralized. You know, that that's a lot of times you see that in the Bitcoin uh, community itself. And obviously RWAs are a little bit more locked down, more permissioned. You know, you have to go through these KYC processes. And so what, what would you say like to those decentralization maximalists who say, you know, you know, there's no reason to put a permissioned asset on a permissionless chain. You know, what, what would be the counter about, uh, you know, why this is a viable path forward for the ecosystem? Why it's a positive uh, direction to take? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, tokenized world assets are certainly not, you know, end-to-end trustless in the way that something like Bitcoin is. Um, you know, they rely on, on centralized issuers. They rely on service providers to abide by legal agreements. Um, but, you know, from the point of issuance onwards, they still leverage the core innovation of, you know, Bitcoin or blockchains more generally, which is you know, solving the double spend problem, creating, you know, provable digital uniqueness. Um, so, you know, like Bitcoin, security tokens can be held and transferred in, you know, provably unique way without the involvement of intermediaries. I mean, I think, you know, stable coins, maybe they're not security tokens, but tokenized world assets would be, um, you know, a great example of that. Uh, you know, like, like anything on Ethereum, they can be called by smart contracts you know, used in marketplaces and other applications without any centralized intermediaries running those applications. Um, you know, to to some degree, they allow users to hold their assets in, in self-custody. Um, you know, the meaning of that is a little bit different in the case of, of rural assets, but, you know, I think that's very valid for something like, you know, USDC. Or, um, so, yeah, I think, you know, they don't create new assets from scratch. Like, like Bitcoin does, but they still benefit from a lot of the, you know, the same trust minimization that that blockchain offers. Um, you know, I, I guess I'd comment too that, 
blockchains are not the only way that we go about minimizing trust. I mean, laws and regulations and, you know, commercial best practices around independent audits, third-party custody, things like good control location, you know, regulated service providers. These have historically been very successful at minimizing the degree to which an investor has to trust any particular actor. Um, so we really focus on those things as well. Like the assets of OUSG are held at, you know, third-party qualified custodians, you know, in ClearStreet's account at the DTC, um, you, know, you know, a super, super regulated financial intermediary where, you know, pretty much all publicly traded equities are, are held. Uh, you know, OUSG receives a, a daily valuation from an independent regulated fund administrator with read-only API access to all the fund's accounts. Um, yeah, I could go on, but these are the sorts of controls that have existed for a long time and the types of structures, um, you know, like we replicated with OUSG. So I think that together, you know, there, we have a pretty powerful combination between using highly regulated audited issuers, um, but then also, you know, leveraging trustless, permissionless DeFi infrastructure on top of them. Yeah, I think you make a good point. Like the blockchain or blockchains are really just one point in the equation. It's not it's not necessarily about replacing all the existing infrastructure and all the existing institutions that service these markets, but more so supplementing them and adding an additional, you know, neutral sediment layer on which all these applications and all these assets can be issued. They can interoperate. There could be programmable conditions attached to those assets. They can interrupt and compose with the different applications. Like, you know, it's kind of creating a system that's, you know, it's better than the status quo. And it's always kind of funny to me, like when people say, you know, there's no demand for RWAs, but, you know, there's 150 million billion dollars of tokenized dollars, stable coins on chain. Like there, there is, there is clear demand here. I think it's a, you know, there's going to be a market for permissionless assets and there'll be a market for, you know, the permissioned assets that people want to interact with. And, you know, the regulation is not inherently bad, but just, you know, it, if applied correctly, can 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 be beneficial to the consumers who want to interact with those applications. Um, I think stepping into to Ondo itself, you talked a little bit about its you know the history of Ondo, but uh, can you provide just like a brief overview of what Ondo has been doing recently over the past couple months and uh, what's been achieved? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, so Ondo very broadly is a blockchain infrastructure platform building a compliant on-chain financial ecosystem. You know, we have two main sides of our business. We have the tokenization side where, you know, we've started by tokenizing treasuries and bonds. And, you know, in the future, we'll be bringing a variety of different asset classes on chain in a number of different legal structures with different degrees of accessibility and interoperability with other platforms. You know, the tokenized treasuries have the qualified purchaser requirement where investors have to have, you know, at least $5 million in investable assets. But, you know, we have other structures that will, you know, use other exemptions so that, you know, we can make them a little bit more accessible. Um, and then we also have the software development arm where we're incubating and contributing to the development of DeFi protocols that have this common theme of supporting both tokenized world assets as well as traditional crypto. Um, so on this side, you know, we develop Flux Finance money market protocol that can support lending of permissionless stable coins against permission collateral, like our tokenized treasuries. And, you know, we have a bunch of other protocols coming on that side as well. 
Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You guys you guys started with you know tokenizing U.S. Treasuries, these investment grade bonds, and these high yield corporate bonds. Uh, why did you choose like that core category of assets versus something like mortgage backed securities or just real estate in general or other private markets pre ICO? Like, well, what's the value proposition of focusing on these like these initial treasuries and bonds? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the fact that there is more than a hundred billion dollars in stablecoins paying out literally zero yield has been kind of the elephant in the room for a while now. I mean, the market's just been screaming for, you know, tokenized treasuries or tokenized money market funds or, um, you know, something to give them some rural yield. So uh, that's really where, you know, where we wanted to start, but we'll certainly be expanding some of these other use cases um, in the future. Uh, you know, I think we also wanted to start with assets that are already super liquid in traditional markets, um, treasuries being a great example, so that we could piggyback off of that liquidity for the tokenized vehicle. Um, you know, that's just going to make it a lot easier to create deep on-chain liquidity than if we were trying to originate some brand new asset, um, you know, which has been the approach of most of the, the rural asset protocols today, like originating you know, loans to, to crypto market makers or, you know, emerging market borrowers or something like that. Um, but with that approach, like you have to create the secondary market liquidity for the first time. Like you can't just rely on, you know, arbitragers uh, and, you know, the existing liquidity outside of the blockchain. And if if Ondo was going to expand to other assets, like let's say high, more highly liquid assets, you know, uh, traditional equities or stocks, would a lot of the processes that you've kind of set up for the treasuries and bonds, would that be mostly the same? Or would you have to kind of reinvent the wheel every time you want to choose an, an additional asset to tokenize? No, it's very copy paste. I mean, certainly for anything publicly traded in the US, it's it's sort of very trivial to add. Um, you know, we can add private instruments like funds pretty easily as well. There's a little bit of nuance from a tax perspective for those sorts of assets, but um, it's pretty generalizable. So we'll be moving quickly to add like, you know, things like longer dated treasuries. A lot of folks have been asking for certainly startups that, you know, want to hedge liabilities further out into the future. Um, you know, equities, equity indices seem to be in pretty high demand. Commodities are pretty interesting. They can be, you know, permissionlessly traded, as you know, folks like Paxos have shown. Um, so yeah, you can expect a, a pretty diverse offering from us on the security token side. Gotcha. Would it still be more like U.S. centric type assets, or you guys are considering going like beyond into emerging markets and other other maybe more risky but other uh, market opportunities? For now, the focus is on you know globalizing access to publicly traded. US based assets, but, you know, blockchains are, of course, um, you know, so global in nature. So it's, I think there's a quite an opportunity to create, you know, a shared settlement layer for, you know, issuers of assets all around the world, you know, CSDs like existing, you know, settlement infrastructure is quite localized. Um, you know, the DTC is entirely in the US, you know, Euro clear, clear stream, you know, they're, they're focused on Europe. And um, I think it is, you know, really exciting that we can have settlement infrastructure that is 
global and that issuers anywhere in the world plug into. So, um, you know, further down the road, you know, year plus out, we'll be we'll be supporting issuers and securities that that are held at you know at other custodians. Gotcha. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. I'm I'm curious in terms of like the operational processes itself. Like, what what is the end to end process look like for you know issuing these tokens, redeeming these tokens? You know, what takes place on chain? What takes place off chain? You know, the the legal constructions. What 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 does that process generally look like that that the end users or the investors may not see, but always kind of is happening in the background to make these assets possible in the first place? Yeah. So first, an investor has to pass our KYC and AML review, um, as well as demonstrate that they're a, a qualified purchaser and an accredited investor. Then they sign some subscription, subscription documents. They send USDC to the funds account at Coinbase. Um, you know, we send them back security tokens corresponding to, um, you know, whatever they invested in. The investor can transfer those security tokens between, you know, other whitelisted addresses. Uh, and then on the back end, you know, we take the USDC that they contributed, convert it into USD at Coinbase, send that USD via wire to ClearStreet, the fund's prime broker, uh, and then we'll instruct ClearStreet to purchase the underlying ETF, um, which ClearStreet will hold in its custody account uh, at the DTC. And then um, you know, we have an independent fund administrator, NAP Consulting, um, I mentioned earlier, who will you know report on the daily nav of the fund and set the exchange rate upon which we admit new investors and service redemptions. Um, yeah, and then I guess the redemption is you know the same thing in reverse. <laughs> Investor sends back their security token um, that automatically triggers a redemption request. You know, we sell the ETF, send the cash to Coinbase, convert to USDC, and send the USDC to the investor. So that process takes a couple of days because security settled T plus two. Um, but there's also like an emerging on-chain market for these tokenized securities. So, you know, we're onboarding a bunch of market makers and OTC desks so investors can, um, you know, can trade with them intraday or on the weekend if they want, you know, quicker liquidity. Yeah, some, something you mentioned is, you know, these assets are actually ETFs you know uh, which i'm curious like what why did you choose to go down like the etf representation of these treasuries and bonds versus like you know holding the treasuries uh, directly and managing that process yourself yeah i think you guys are going through blackrock for the etfs like what what, what's the trade-offs or like the benefits there there's a few i mean one we felt like the market would trust blackrock to manage a treasuries book more than us i mean at the end of the day like someone is still you know having to buy and sell treasuries to, you know, keep rolling them and to admit new investors and service redemptions. Um, so yeah, I think the like 15 bips fee that we pay BlackRock to not have to set up that infrastructure or, you know, foster the market trust in us as a, you know, manager of treasuries is, is well worth it. And, you know, when we get to, you know, some scale of, you know, tens of billions of dollars, then, uh, then we can internalize management of that um over time and then yeah I, I i think that's the that's probably the easy answer otherwise it's there's a lot of liquidity in these etfs i mean we're you know we're bundling a 20 billion dollar etf that trades a few hundred million dollars a day and so 
you know, when we want to service a redemption, like that's the one thing we're selling instead of having to decide, you know, which particular treasuries we're selling. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. It'll be exciting to see if it, you know, this scales up to tens of billions and then, uh, uh, you know, what that, what that will look like in the DeFi ecosystem by that point. Um, you know, well, one of the limitations of RDBA is of course, like you have to comply with the existing regulations. You kind of have to deal with the cards that you are dealt. So that's not something you can really, you can't skirt around. So I'm curious, you, you mentioned a little bit before, but like what you mentioned the KYC, but like, what is the regulatory compliance look like with these tokens themselves? Obviously you can't just transfer them to anybody or use it in any application. How, how do, what does that setup kind of look like um, from an on-chain perspective? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's actually pretty straightforward. Um, you know, we, as I was mentioning, conduct KYC AML review on all investors. And then we use smart contracts to programmatically enforce that, you know, they can only send tokens to other investors on the same whitelist. Um, you know, where things get maybe a little bit more complicated is that many investors want to use smart contracts with their security tokens. And there's, you know, all sorts of very clearly legitimate reasons why they may want to, such as, you know, holding their tokens in a multi-sig or, you know, engaging in some sort of bilateral swap or loan with other, you know, qualified investors admitted to the fund. And so, you know, we needed to figure out some way to allow those sorts of activities while still, um, you know, still preventing activities that would subvert the intent of the transfer restriction, like the creation of a, you know, permissionless derivative, like a, a wrap nexus mutual or something like that. And so, um, you know, we have a separate whitelisting process for smart contracts where an investor effectively just has to demonstrate that the smart contract in question is not being used to subvert the intent of the transfer restrictions. Um, and then, and then we can whitelist that as well. So, you know, with Flux, for instance, we were able to get comfortable whitelisting Flux because F tokens respect the same transfer restrictions of whatever they wrap. So if you deposit OUSG, which can only be held by certain whitelist investors to Flux, then, you know, only the same whitelist investors can use OUSG on Flux. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess if I'm like a, you know, I'm a DeFi developer, I have a DEX or I have a money market or I have one of these applications and I want to integrate onto those tokenized assets in my protocol, what what does that process look like? You know, how, how is the, you know, do you go through the DAO in that case and people are voting on it? You know, what what is what does that process look like if I want to introduce sustainable yield to my to my user base? Yeah, so if the DAO has an entity that, you know, is a qualified purchaser with, you know, 5 million or more in investable assets and can pass, you know, KYC and AML review, then we can certainly onboard it directly into OUSG. And yeah, I think that's been the case for most DAOs. I mean, MakerDAO, for instance, has been, you know, really pioneering and demonstrating, you know, how they can set up these sorts of, you know, real world vehicles to invest in in assets like OUSG. Um, so we're certainly onboarding some DAOs. Um, we're onboarding more centralized platforms, frankly, who, you know, see a lot of benefit in the fact that OUSG is this, you know, global 24-7 real-time settlement platform. Um, and then, you know, protocol developers, you know, they they just need to comply with the same sorts of, you know, transfer restrictions that Flux complies with. So, you know, we're speaking with a bunch of major lending protocols about 
onboarding OUSG in the same way that that Flux was able to, um, you know, and and certainly other developers can look to assets at, you know, at Flux or at other lending protocols as well, which are you know even easier to integrate. Yeah, we'll we'll step into Flux in just a moment, but you know, you mentioned you know some of these other assets that you may explore in the future, but. You know, what does the general future look like for Ondo Finance? Is it going to continue down this path of of tokenizing assets? Are there other types of applications you want to uh, create or, or deploy to support your tokenized ecosystem? Like, what kind of approach is Ondo taking? Is it like building the infrastructure or deploying apps to support those tokens? Or is it much more third-party integration focused? Or maybe it sounds like it's a little bit of a combination of both. It's definitely a combination of both. I mean, the two are very synergistic. I mean, they're you know, I'd say that most of our time and effort in the future will be spent on developing new applications, developing new protocols, um, you know, getting our assets integrated with, you know, other developers and other ecosystems. Um, you know, I think that we have a pretty reusable security token infrastructure where, you know, we can, you know, churn out new assets quite easily. So, um, you know, on that front, we're really just looking for for market feedback and, you know, to develop the the use cases to support that. Um, you know, I think that like our our mode and our differentiation long term will come from, you know, these sorts of applications like like Flux, which is, you know, really a, a treasury repo market on chain. Um, you know, you can imagine a, a variant of Flux that accepts, you know, a much greater variety of different security tokens as well as you know bona fide crypto assets uh that could enable the creation of various on-chain prime brokers um you know that can lend over collateralized against crypto and against security tokens so um you know that's another use case that that we're looking to enable yeah that'd be really interesting and you know i think like the premier example of course is flux finance itself um you know, which as a recording was launched just this week. And so could you, could you step in a little bit, like what is Flux Finance as a protocol, how it relates to Ondo, and, you know, what, what kind of the utility there is? Yeah, so Flux is a decentralized lending protocol that was designed to be able to support both traditional crypto as well as permission tokens like OUSG, uh, you know, Flux, respects the transfer restrictions if there are any of assets that it supports. So, you know, to use the example I gave earlier, if you post a tokenized security like OUSG that can only be held by whitelisted investors, then only investors in the same whitelist can, you know, can borrow other assets using that tokenized security as collateral or, you know, can participate in, you know, liquidations of that security token collateral when some other borrower defaults. Um, you know, Auto Finance developed Flux, but Flux is currently an autonomous protocol, you know, very similar to Compound, um, in our case with upgrades governed by the Ondo DAO. Um, so, you know, we sold tokens to almost 20,000 purchasers through a sale and coin list about, you know, about a year ago. So, you know, those are the, the folks who are governing Flux today. Um, you know, making decisions like what new assets it can support and, um, you know, what the risk parameters are. Yeah, one of the things I find really interesting about Flux is like you're able to basically kind of merge 
this permissioned and permissionless ecosystem. You know, people people deploy these assets as collateral, these permissioned assets like OUSG as collateral, and then they're able to borrow these permissionless USDC assets, effectively kind of allowing the yield to flow from the treasuries to these other stablecoins. Could you could you describe like what that process looks like and like why people would want to borrow against these assets? Yeah, so I'll I'll kind of recap the the workflow for those who might not be familiar with Compound as well. So, you know, lenders supply stablecoins to a pool within Flux, and then other users can borrow those stablecoins over collateralized by permissioned assets that they post to the same pool. Um, you know, borrowers accrue an expense that is determined based on stablecoin supply and demand. And, you know, if a borrower's outstanding debt gets too close to its collateral value, then that borrower will become subject to liquidation. And any third party who, you know, is permission to hold whatever that borrower has posted as collateral can buy that collateral at a discount and supply the pool with the equivalent value of stable coins that the borrower was borrowing so that the pool can be made whole um, so that, you know, lenders can get back their assets. So, um, you know, in this manner, it enables the, you know, the lending of assets over collateralized by other assets that the lender may not actually be permissioned to own because liquidations are happening between permission third parties. Um, and there's actually a lot of precedent for this type of activity in TradFi. I mean, I touched on this example earlier, but, you know, as a Goldman, we were exploring lending over collateralized against Bitcoin. And, you know, we would not have been legally allowed to own that Bitcoin, but it would, you know, just like at Flux, in the event of default, have just been liquidated, you know, at a tri-party agent, you know, effectively between third parties. Yeah, that's an interesting approach, dude. You know, with the given that like liquidators have to be KYC and onboarded, is that something you guys like are helping onboard other other like liquidation bots that are KYC'd, you know, in order to ensure liquidations happen seamlessly, or is that more so just kind of it's a market market driven process? I mean, ultimately it is a market driven process. Like there is, you know, an arbitrage to be made from being a liquidator because you get to buy the collateral at a discount and then you know you can turn around and redeem it from the fund right away and get back, you know, your stable coins within a couple of days. So, you know, I'm really not worried about there being enough liquidators for these sorts of security tokens. But um, yeah, we've onboarded a bunch of folks to the fund, you know, many of whom are, you know, are ready to be liquidators. Gotcha. Yeah. And one of the, like the, ways the compounds implemented is like the interest rate for borrowing, how much it costs depends on how much is being borrowed, the utilization ratios. So these, you know, these borrowing rates can change over time. What's well, kind of like the, the the trade-off of having these variable rates versus having something that's, that may be more uh, stable or more static uh, predictable borrowing rates. Is there, is there like a trade-off there? Yeah. I mean, the variable rates that are market determined are what, you know, create the ability for lenders to supply stablecoins at any time and for borrowers to borrow them at any time. Um, so I think that, you know, that's where the most demand is for now for, you know, cash-like exposures for lenders. Um, 
you know, it certainly comes with some trade-offs like volatility and rate. But I think that in the case of Flux, that volatility will be tremendously less than it is on, you know, Compound or Aave because, you know, the, the demand for leverage is not driven by demand to, you know, go long, levered long Bitcoin or ETH or other crypto. Like it's, you know, it's really just to invest into treasuries. So, um, yeah, I mean, rates on, on treasury repo markets are, you know, relatively stable. So I think that long term, it'll be the same. Yeah, that makes sense. The it, borrowing against crypto assets is definitely much more dri- driven by what activity is happening in the crypto ecosystem versus borrowing against traditional assets can basically ride ride the volatility over time. I think yeah. you know, expanding over into like the Oracle sphere, you know, because it's a uh, you know a fork of compound, it needs oracles in order to know the valuation of these assets. What's your guys' kind of approach there, and how you explain to uh, uh, plan to expand that over time, and then. Kind of also a secondary question as well is like what what what's your view on on proof reserve and the role that plays with Ondo and just kind of in general with real world assets? Yeah. Um, so currently the the price of OUSG updates daily based on the valuation that NAP Consulting, the fund admin, gives. And you know, NAP Consulting is a you know major regulated traditional fund administrator that um, you know, as I was touching on earlier, has direct read only. API access to all of the funds accounts. So I think they really provide a very TradFi form of proof of reserves for, for OUSG. Um, you know, right now we update the OUSG Oracle daily based on what NAV reports. And, you know, we're in the process of building redundancy around that as, you know, it is a fairly centralized Oracle through um, you know, third-party price feeds like from Chainlink and Pith that can, you know, look at the the price of the underlying ETFs inside of the the funds as kind of a sanity check for what NAV Consulting reports. Gotcha. It, do you think the like end users or even just anybody who owns these assets? Do you see them in the future preferring the assets that have you know this proof of reserve verification? Do you think that's something that end users realistically care about? Yeah, I think they should, definitely. I mean, I don't know if I would always call it proof of reserves per se, but I think they should care about, you know, independent valuations um, and independent audits, which, you know, we're delivering with OUSG. As well as just, you know, keeping assets, you know, in segregated, regulated custody, um, which is an important piece of it. Yeah, for sure. There's a, you know, you don't want any... uh... You want to be able to have trust within the mechanisms itself, for sure. And having having the transparency is kind of, in my mind, it's kind of like crucial. So people know, you know, are these tokens actually backed by the assets that I think they are over time, which I think as the ecosystem expands to billions, becomes particularly relevant. I think stepping back a little bit, you know, a lot of the DeFi ecosystem thus far historically is kind of focused on like, you know, the maximal permissionless decentralized DeFi kind of issue these tokens and gamble and you know, speculate on these tokens, but then obviously now we're have these applications deployed that are more focused on these uh, permissioned assets, permissioned DeFi ecosystem. Almost, it's you know, DeFi becomes a bit of a misnomer there. But do you think that this permission regulated DeFi and then the more permissionless open DeFi will split into these two different ecosystems, or do you think that these ecosystems will merge over time? Maybe Flux is kind of a a middle ground between those two. How, how do you kind of see these this ecosystem of on chain finance evolving over time? 
Yeah, I mean, permissioning is is really not a binary thing in the way that I think a lot of market participants in crypto make it out to be. I mean, some of these, you know, institutional or permission DeFi platforms really just look at like, are you KYC'd or not? And if you are, you can hold anything on this blockchain. And if you're not, you can't. And I think that's just not the way that, you know, permissioning and qualification works in the real world. Um, so, I, you know, I, let's, I can give you an example, like Reg S securities from a U.S. issuer uh, can be sold to anyone outside of the U.S. And, you know, after a certain period of time, even that restriction goes away. So for like a, a Reg S, you know, equities offering after a year, you know, they can even, you know, flow back to, to U.S. purchasers. Um, you know, other securities like, like OUSG have much higher degrees of permissioning. Um, you know, investors have to prove qualified purchaser status. And that holds true for, you know, the, the life of the instrument. So, you know, that will always be, um, you know, pretty guarded off. You know, stable coins, I guess, still a bit of a regulatory gray area, but generally permissionless assets, you know, KYC to, to issue and redeem, but, you know, can be held by anyone at any time. Um, and so I think that, you know, over time we'll have a, a DeFi, you know, an on-chain financial ecosystem that has very granular identification controls um, and where assets and activities with widely varying degrees of permissioning can still interoperate with each other and exist on, you know, the same or on interoperable blockchains. I think that, you know, Flux is a great example of this where, you know, you have permission assets like OUSG that can be used as, you know, as collateral for assets that are permissionless like USDC. Um, and yeah, I think that we're going to see, you know, a, a whole ecosystem of, of other examples that continue down that theme. Yeah, it seems like stable coins are, you know, they're able to kind of prove that these two ecosystems are not disparate. That they could be combined. It, it, I, I generally do agree. It's, it's much more of a spectrum of applications. Do you think that like privacy preserving KYC is something that will play a role of making people more comfortable with going through these, you know, these, these, uh, these types of checks? Do you see a, a place for that in this ecosystem? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a really, really hard problem, and you know, KYC utilities uh, have been, you know, tried for you know decades in TradFi. And you know, there's just a lot of challenges in that, you know, issuers really all have to check, you know, different pieces of information. And, you know, there's, there's sort of reluctance from a compliance perspective to rely on, you know, the KYC and AML work that others have done. Um, but I think that there are solutions to all of that. I think that we're still in super, super early days of that. Um, you know, the solutions that I've seen today are still pretty far away from being usable for, you know, an issuer like us for OUSG. Um, you, they don't really provide reliance letters, for instance, that, you know, give us the legal clarity that we can, you know, use their, their KYC and AML. But, you know, again, these things are solvable. And, um, yeah, I think for a lot of, certain asset types, you know, all the issuer has to do is like 
make sure that, you know, the investor is not an American or something like that. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of exciting use cases of that. Yeah. It, it seems like, it seems like a common theme that I've seen is like, you know, the, there's, there's these applications that exist in DeFi itself. They're more focused on these existing crypto tokens, but you know, Londo is, you know, forking compound and kind of applying these layers on top or these modifications to make it suitable for permissioned assets. I know JP Morgan recently forked Aave for their tests with, with real world assets. Do you think it's going to be a common theme for existing DeFi protocols to be kind of forked and then modified to fit these assets? Or do you see like the existing DeFi infrastructure kind of molding and converting over time so that it can then support those assets? Like are these two different paths or these kind of the same paths that will happen at the same time? What's kind of your, your thinking there? Yeah, I think that both will happen. I mean, on the forking side, there's, you know, tremendous appeal in working, you know, with forking protocols that have already been battle tested in DeFi. Um, yeah, I think DeFi is kind of the sandbox where new designs are experimented with and, you know, harden and improve over time, both from a, you know, market, you know, game theoretic perspective and a smart contract risk perspective. Um, you know, we, you know, we fork Compound V2 because it's been around for several years now and, um, you know, has functioned really without any super major smart contract issues or severe liquidity issues. You know, I think it's a super, you know, novel, elegant design that shows how peer-to-pool lending can work and provide borrowers and lenders with, you know, constant liquidity, reasonable pricing, um, all without any intermediation, you know, any market makers whatsoever. So, um, you know, it's, it's only been used really to lever up cryptocurrencies to date, but, uh, you know, we're super excited to, you know, to apply it towards the facilitation of, you know, leverage on traditional assets like treasuries. And, um, you know, more broadly, I think, I think there's a lot of really exciting stuff that's been built in DeFi that can be, you know, commercialized and repurposed for, you know, more traditional use cases. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious why you guys chose to go down like compound route versus something like a uh, uh, kind of forking maker and then having a stable coin that's issued backed by these real world assets. You know, is there is there a reason you like you didn't go down minting your own stable coin? Yeah, I mean, that just has a ton of more, you know, regulatory hair on it. Like stable coins are um, are under a lot of hot water right now. I mean. To, to you know, create a decentralized stablecoin is is you know a whole other thing today. So um, you know, I think that we can get you know all of the same commercial benefits in a very you know compliant way by sticking to security tokens. Yeah, for sure. I kind of felt that was the case, just because managing a stablecoin protocol is uh you know then you have to deal with the peg and then you deal with market liquidity and like you know it's it's a little bit more of a whole other project <laughs> at that point. I think, uh, you know, just kind of a, a last question here. Well, what's your general outlook on the intersection of art, uh, real world assets and DeFi, you know, over like the next decade, you know, are, are we going to, do you think we're going to reach more regulatory clarity, you know, with stable coins uh, specifically, you know, what, what, what's the future of the DeFi ecosystem in your mind? Yeah, I guess it, it you know, on regulatory clarity really depends on what we're talking about exactly. I, I'd say I'm reasonably optimistic in general. You know, in, in some areas, we have 
a lot of clarity, like how we can tokenize securities and other real world assets. Um, you know, smart contracts allow issuers to more definitively comply with various SEC exemptions, like, you know, limits on the number of investors and transfer restrictions, um, you know, compared to the status quo of a lot of traditional securities that, you know, that are settled outside of, you know, settlement systems like the DTC, where ownership is, you know, transferred via, you know, signing of documents sent over email. So, um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, there's there's pretty clear alignment on that front. And, you know, in the case of OUSG, it's just very, very cleanly compliant with, you know, existing exemptions. Um, you know, I, I, on the security token side, there's less clarity in some cases on how market intermediaries can interact with these assets. Um, certainly, you know, heavily regulated market intermediaries like a, a central counterparty, <laughs> for instance. Um, and I think that that will take some time, but I know it's it's being worked on. Um, on DeFi, on stable coins, there's a lot less regulatory clarity and I definitely don't have as much insight into how things are shaping out on that front. Um, you know, my hope is certainly the protocol development will be protected as a form of free speech. Um, on front ends, I think things are a little bit less clear. You know, we're, we're certainly prepared for things to go either way. You know, if they end up being regulated the same way that centralized platforms are, I think that, you know, from the perspective of Ondo, we can deal with that and adapt. But um, yeah, that's a, a big open question for a lot of the ecosystem. Yeah, definitely have to stay agile in this ecosystem, yeah. I think. IPFS ENS will become a particularly useful tool uh, over time to help help address some of these issues. Um, yeah, I, I'm. I appreciate you coming onto this podcast and talking about RWAs. It's definitely a topic that I see a lot more people getting interested in, particularly after everything that's kind of happened over the last year. I think a lot of people have kind of realized a lot of the DeFi games that have been played haven't been particularly the most sustainable. So bring these real world assets into this ecosystem really seems like the path forward in order to creating a, you know, actually having a large impact on, you know, improving the status quo of how the global economy currently operates. Do you have any like last thoughts or last takeaways that you want to give the listeners that they should know about Ondo or about real world assets in general? Yeah. I mean, I guess just a shout out to, you know, all the builders in the ecosystem, you know, we're, we're speaking with a whole bunch of protocol developers, centralized platforms, you know, from, you know, neobanks to exchanges about, you know, products, you know, for Ondo and, you know, for, for other stuff we're developing in the future. So, you know, if you're looking to offer tokenized world assets to your, to your users, um, you know, please reach out to us where we're super happy to chat. Um, yeah. And thank you so much for, for having me on. It's been a pleasure to chat. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, what's the best, you know, if somebody wants to learn more about Ondo, where, where should they go? Uh, we're on Twitter at Ondo Finance. Um, your website is ondo.finance. Um, and, you know, you can reach me on Twitter at Nathan L. Allman, A-L-L-M-A-N. Perfect. Yeah, I would definitely recommend anybody listening to go check out Ondo. What they're building is very, very interesting, very unique. And I think it's 
you know, if, if the, everything goes right in the DeFi ecosystem, I think RWAs and Ondo is going to play a, a pretty significant role in the ecosystem. So, yeah, one, once again, thanks, Nathan, for for uh, for coming on here and talking about Ondo. I've definitely learned uh, quite a bit, and I'm excited to keep diving more into this ecosystem. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, and thanks for everybody for listening. Have a good one. Thanks so much.